Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, reinforcements arrive for Mississippi hospitals. Then the White House vaccine coordinator visits the state. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, Natchez announces plans to renovate an historic hotel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Yesterday, the Mississippi Department of Health reported an alarming 3,200 new cases of COVID-19, along with an increase in virus-related hospitalizations. But Dr. Paul Byers, who's the state epidemiologist, says a deeper dive into the data yields some cause for optimism. If you look at the trends over time, it looks like we are leveling off in the number of hospitalizations. This is the good news, and I really want to talk about some of the good things that we're seeing right now. Number one, when you look at our cases over time, it looks like we are beginning to plateau. A couple of days does not a trend make, but it does look like we're moving in the right direction with our case numbers. It does look like we're starting to have some leveling off with our hospitalizations. Certainly, we've seen that with ventilator use and ICU uh, admissions as well. The state epidemiologist speaking there alongside Governor Reeves at a press conference yesterday. Reeves, in his own remarks, focused largely on his administration's response to Mississippi's hospital crisis. He says he's made arrangements for over a thousand military and civilian health care workers to reinforce Mississippi hospitals in the coming weeks. Getting boots on the ground this quickly is a step in the right direction. I'm grateful to each and all of the healthcare professionals who are working day and night to take care of our fellow Mississippians, and I'm grateful to those who are coming here to help. Having these staffing needs met will help to alleviate a portion of the strain on our healthcare system and ensure that all Mississippians that need care will receive the quality care they deserve. In addition, last week, we administered over 81,000 vaccines. Of those, approximately 53,000 were first doses. We have now been distributing vaccines for 36 weeks in Mississippi. 
This number of 81,000 is the 11th highest total out of those 36 weeks. And it is the sixth week in a row that we have had week over week increases. It is the largest number of vaccine doses that have been administered in Mississippi since the middle of April. Over the past several days, some state political leaders, including House Speaker Philip Gunn, have urged Reeves to call a legislative special session to address Mississippi's COVID crisis. Others, like Representative Benny Thompson, want the governor to mandate face masks statewide. As of now, Reeves says he has no plans to grant either request. Coming up, a conversation with the White House vaccine coordinator. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's COVID-19 vaccination rate hovers a little below 40%. That's second lowest in the nation behind only Alabama. Dr. Bashara Shuker, who's the White House vaccinations coordinator, visited Jackson yesterday to meet with healthcare leaders in the state. He also set aside a few minutes to speak with MPB's Rob Lane. As a country, we have done a great job in getting so many people vaccinated here in Mississippi and across the country. We have more than 200 million people with at least one shot. We have more than 100 and 70 million people fully vaccinated. Uh, The fact remains that we still have tens of millions of people who are unvaccinated, and those folks continue to be uh, at risk of catching the virus and, unfortunately, at risk of getting hospitalized and, and, and dying from this disease. So we still have a lot of work to do here in Mississippi and across the country. You're a guy in a suit, right, who came down from Washington to Mississippi to try to convince folks to get vaccinated. I know that you're aware that you might not be the right messenger for this for everyone. Who do you need as allies to help get this message out? Well, I've been in the state here since early this morning, and I had an opportunity to spend some time with doctors, with uh, primary care physicians, pediatricians, family docs. I spent time with the leaders of the state health department. I spent some time with um, the leaders of the community health centers across the state of Mississippi, and everybody's doing a lot of great work to make sure they're connecting with their patients, they're talking to people, they're trying to deliver answers to people, and hopefully they'll be able to sway more and more people who are still waiting about the vaccine to um, to get vaccinated. Um, We are seeing more people getting vaccinated across the country, including here in Mississippi. Just last week alone, we have more than 50,000 people in Mississippi who've gotten their very first shot. I think people are realizing that this pandemic ain't over. They're realizing that um, this new variant, the Delta variant, is much more contagious. It's an opportunist virus, and it's finding those who are unvaccinated and infecting them. So I I think we're seeing the uptick. We'd want to continue to build on that momentum so we can get more and more people protected. A few months ago, Mississippi's state health officer said that he tried to organize a vaccine town hall with pastors of predominantly white churches in the state. And he received what we described as a, quote, very tepid response, and it didn't end up happening. Have you and your team tried any outreach with evangelical leaders? And if so, how has that gone? 
Well, I have to tell you, I mean, we truly believe that uh, we have to continue to do everything we can to engage with community leaders, engage with faith-based leaders, engage with um, uh, folks in the community that people trust. We know that people trust people they know, and we have to continue to do everything we can to do that. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of people who volunteered to become COVID Community Corps, and we're engaging with these folks on a regular basis. That community-level engagement is so important because, again, people trust people they know, and faith-based leaders, community leaders, they all play a significant role, and we have to continue to do that. Even if at this point vaccine hesitancy may be declining overall, are you concerned that there's an with this increasing disinformation around vaccines, that there's a class of people who will never, ever get the vaccine that's kind of calcifying, that there are people that are slipping through the hands of people like you who may be reaching a point where they'll never hear the right message on vaccines? Well, the way I look at it um, is we'd want to make sure that we're getting the information, we're getting facts to people so that they can make their informed decision. And I have no doubt when people would get the facts, when people will get the answers and the information, they'll be more inclined to getting vaccinated. Now, there's always going to be a small group of people who, no matter what you do, no matter how you outreach, you might not be able to uh, change their minds. But we know that we're still vaccinating a lot of new people every single day. We're averaging almost 450,000 people every single day getting their very first shot in the United States. So I know there's still people out there who are uh, changing their minds, who've been waiting. Now they're getting vaccinated. And look, the full approval uh, yesterday by the FDA for the Pfizer vaccine will make an impact on some people's uh, decision. We've heard it through um, surveys and focus groups that some people were waiting for the full approval of the vaccines by the FDA. And so for those folks, if you've been uh, waiting, now is the time to get vaccinated. In retrospect, and of course, hindsight is 2020. Could the federal government under either President Trump or President Biden have done more at the beginning of the vaccine rollout to combat vaccine disinformation? But we continue to do tremendous work in making sure that people have facts, people have answers. The Surgeon General has issued a full uh, advisory on misinformation. We all have a role to play to make sure that people are getting the facts. And, and again, when people get facts, when people get answers, I have no doubt they'll be more inclined to getting vaccinated. And we all have a role in that uh, in that space. And again, I continue to be concerned about the misinformation, continue to be concerned about the scale, the sophistication, the spread of misinformation, and we all have work to do on this front. When you say we all have work to do on this front, what do you envision the battle against misinformation looking like from here forward, both within you know, government operations and outside them? Well, we all have a role to play. I think um, when people are getting information and they're not sure about the source of the information, it'll be really important that you verify the source before we forward that information to other people. Um, I spent some time with doctors, family docs, and pediatricians just uh, an hour ago or so. We docs have a big role to make sure that they are confronting misinformation directly. Um, we're working with 
social uh, social um, uh, media organizations and companies. We're working with faith-based community. We all have a role to play to make sure that we're providing facts and we're providing information and we're fighting disinformation and misinformation. Long-term, if the Deep South can't get more than about, say, half of its vaccine-eligible population vaccinated against COVID, what happens from an epidemiological standpoint? Well, here's how I look at it. When you have a um, virus that's much more contagious than prior variants, and when you have communities with low vaccination rates, this is a recipe for a spike. And this is exactly what we're seeing across many parts of the country that have low vaccination rates. And we have to continue to be able to do everything we can to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Um, We have to continue to engage with community-based organizations, trusted messengers. We have to continue to work with the healthcare systems to make sure that vaccines are available at doctor's offices, that our primary care docs are reaching out to their unvaccinated patients, that having those conversations, making sure that vaccines is available in emergency room departments, making sure that vaccines is available upon discharge from the hospitals. We have to continue to do everything we can to make the access to the vaccine as easy as possible and continue to build confidence in the vaccine so that we can get more and more people vaccinated and therefore protected. All right. Thank you so much for talking with us and thanks for visiting Mississippi. All right. Thank you. That was Dr. Bashara Shukar. He's the White House Vaccinations Coordinator. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, Natchez looks forward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Visitors drawn to the antebellum architecture of Natchez powered the River City's economy throughout much of the 20th century. When tourist revenue declined, though, much of Natchez's downtown, including the iconic Eola Hotel, went belly up. Mayor Dan Gibson hopes to bring it back to life. The Eola Hotel has been a landmark in Natchez, Mississippi, since 1927. It is a Mississippi landmark. It is a national treasure. And sadly, in 2014, it fell into some hard times and went through a change in ownership and closed. And many have called it a cancer on our downtown ever since, an indicator of better days gone by. Did it fall into disrepair during that time? It it has fallen into tremendous disrepair and is home to many, many pigeons. Is it building it again from the ground up, or is it revitalizing the building itself? Oh, no. The bones of the grand lady are all still there. She is absolutely beautiful, just in need of major, major renovation. And so uh, this is a daunting task, but we are grateful that we've had some developers step up to undertake it, and we're very excited. The Eola was, you said, around since 1927, and there have been pilgrimage tours for 80 years now. The two started side by side? Well, yes, the Natchez pilgrimage goes all the way back to the 1930s. And uh, the Eola, having been built in 27, and the heyday of all these early pilgrimages really helped put the Eola on the map as one of the great watering holes between Memphis and New Orleans. 
Now, over the years, we have seen some decline in Natchez. That obviously affected the Eola. But we are celebrating now what we call the Natchez Renewal. And it is amazing to see what's happening in Natchez. We are breaking records everywhere you look in job creation, in new businesses, record sales tax collections. And some have said our sales tax collections on a per capita basis may very well be the strongest in the state. Natchez also has some darker aspects in the Civil War. First of all, my question is, why wasn't Natchez destroyed? Why do we have so many antebellum homes in Natchez that survived the Civil War? Karen, Natchez actually was a winter haven for many Northerners. People don't realize this. As a result, we had a lot of Union sympathizers who did not agree with secession, did not agree with the war, and actually Natchez did not vote to join the rest of the state in the original secession. When the Union Army came to Natchez, they were treated with hospitality and uh, kindness. And as a result, Natchez, for the most part, was able to go through the Civil War unscathed. Natchez was the second largest slave trading city. Yes, and you in had, the Deep South. Yeah, and, and New Orleans was number one? That's right. And our Forks of the Road site here in Natchez was very close to the uh, area where the Natchez Trace terminates at Natchez. And these enslaved Africans would walk in bondage, in shackles, for miles and miles down the trace along a road called the Old Washington Road. They would cross an old bridge that still stands and come to the Forks of the Road slave market. We were just there yesterday, and it is moving to be there. And we have now given that site to the federal government. It is the newest acquisition of the Park Service and is the only site in the entire country, in the entire Park Service, dedicated to the telling of the antebellum slave market story. It's such a such a dire image and what you've described. And yet on the other side of Natchez, we have antebellum homes, these gorgeous homes that are opened up to the public. Used to be spring and fall, and now I think it's year-round, isn't it? We still have a spring and fall pilgrimage, but we have tours year-round. And what I am excited to see happening is that we have realized the importance of our African-American heritage and history without these craftsmen, these enslaved craftsmen, many of them, most of them, none of these structures would exist. And so we are working to tell not just part of the story, but to tell the whole story. And Karen, we are working now to uh, even commemorate the U.S. Colored Troops who served here in Natchez. We are working to properly designate almost 30 important sites having to do with our African-American history and civil rights history 
And in January, on the occasion of Dr. King's birthday, we will begin a very aggressive signage campaign with QR codes and an interpretive self-guided trail all across our city at almost 30 different African-American history sites. That's a long time coming. What prompted these changes and these advancements in telling the story of slavery in Natchez? Well, I ran for mayor just a little over a year ago. And, of course, we were in the midst of this pandemic. And during the campaign, we were faced with all of the civil unrest going around our country in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy. And I had long been a proponent of seeing unity in our state. And it was just time. Natchez Mayor Dan Gibson, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.